I invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles back to Paul's letter to the Philippians. This morning, we'll be looking at the first seven verses of Philippians chapter 3. But as you turn over there, I want you to think back with me first to something that happened nearly 30 years before Paul wrote these verses from Rome to his friends in Philippi. (laughs) About 30 years before this, there was an event that happened far away from either Rome or Philippi, but it was an event that in many ways changed the future of both of those cities. At the time that I have in mind, Paul was better known by his Hebrew name, Saul. And on this particular day, Saul was carrying letters in his hand about Christians. But these letters that he had that day were very different from the letters that we have come to know him best for. The letters in his hands that day were from the high priest in Jerusalem. And those letters gave him the explicit authority to bind and to bring back to Jerusalem any person man or woman, who identified as a follower of the imposter Jesus of Nazareth. As Saul goes on his way and begins to draw near to the city of Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashes around him, and Saul and all the people with him fall to the ground. And then came the voice calling his name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responds, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. That that event, that day, radically altered Paul's life, Saul's life. But it also changed the course of history. That story is, of course... What we talk about is the story of Saul's conversion or the story of the Damascus Road. Now, one of the interesting things, I've been looking at the accounts of that story in the book of Acts. It's told three different times in the book of Acts. Luke repeatedly in Acts puts the emphasis on the external, tangible events that happened on the Damascus Road. So if you read those stories in any of the accounts, you you see the light for example. You watch Saul fall to the ground. We hear the voice from heaven. The only thing we hear from Saul is the question, who are you, Lord? Now, if you follow the story a little further in Acts, what you find out is that Saul became blind. He was blinded by the light for the next three days. And during those three days, we're told that Saul did not eat or drink. But that's basically all we're told. We're not told what he did do during those three days. So I have a question. Have you ever thought about what was going on in Saul's mind during those days? What do you think Saul did during those three days of darkness? See, The stories as they're told in Acts, they don't go there. They only tell you about the external events. But have you thought about what was going on inside of Saul? What did he do during those three days? I think it's safe to assume he did at least two things, at least two. He prayed and he thought. 
And then he prayed, and he thought some more, and he prayed, and he thought some more. Because he certainly had a lot to pray about and a lot to think about. All that he had ever lived for and all that he was currently spending his life on was instantly brought into serious question by what had happened on that road. But as I said, the story next focuses almost entirely on the external events. But wouldn't it be nice to know what was going on in Saul's heart? And I think if you want to learn about that, there is one great text to turn to in the New Testament. And it is a text we'll be in together today in Philippians chapter 3. So in a lot of ways, I think the story or the text that we read today is Paul's commentary on the story of his own conversion. Okay, now before we go further, uh, I want to pause and I want to read this whole section in Philippians chapter 3. Our focus is going to be on the first seven verses, but I want to read through the first 16 verses of Philippians 3. So take a look at the text. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I read the whole text because I I want us to think about the whole section first before we dig deeper into the first four verses. So I want to make a couple observations about the whole section. Did you notice first that Paul talks a lot about himself in those 
16 verses and about how he thinks. Yeah, there, there's simply not much else like this in Paul's writings where he opens up his heart and his mind to this extent. I counted it up this week. Paul says words like I, me, my 23 times in those 16 verses. Yeah, this is a text about how Paul thought, how he processed life. Okay? The second thing, if, if you press into what Paul talks about, he talks about how he thought and how he thinks about the past, about the present, and about the future. He first looks back to before he knew Christ, to what he used to live for, to all that he had accomplished. That's mostly in the text we're going to look at today. But then Paul talks a lot about his goals in the present, what drives him now. And then towards the end, Paul talks again and again about the future. He starts talking about the resurrection from the dead. The third thing I'd point out from the text is that although Paul talks a lot about himself, this whole passage is centered on Christ. I counted this up too. There are about 20 words, 21 words in that section referring to Jesus, referring to Christ. So this text shows us how Paul thought about the past in relation to Christ. How he thinks about the present in relation to Christ, and how he thinks about the future in relation to Christ. Everything in his thoughts revolves around Christ. Now, all of those observations are about what he says in the text, but the last one is I want to point out why he says this. Because he doesn't do this to this extent in any other letter that he wrote. Why does he share so much about how he thought, how he processed life, how he thought about Christ. So lastly, Paul shares how he thinks specifically because he wants others to think like he does. Paul wanted his friends in Philippi and us to actually adopt the exact same thinking. That's why he writes this at this point in the letter. He's intentionally putting himself forward as a model to follow. That's why I wanted to read all 16 verses, because you don't realize that until you get to verse 15. Look at Philippians 3, verse 15. What is the application of the section? Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. He is intentionally putting himself forward as a model for how to think. Now, with that said, I want to dig in a little deeper to the first seven verses. So look at verse 1 again. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I'll start with that word, finally. Okay. Do you see where you are in the letter? Okay. There, this is a fine translation. Okay. But if Paul is intending to say finally here, this is like the classic Minnesota goodbye. Yeah. Because as you can tell, half of the letter is still in front of us. And yes, I do know the joke about what it means when a preacher says finally. It means he's halfway done. That's, that's what the kids always say. All right. okay. But another option for translating finally there that you'll see in other places is and this could be like the sense of in addition or moving on from what we just talked about. Okay. In other words, Paul just finished talking about his ministry plans. Now he's ready to move on to the next big thing he wants to talk about in the letter. And that, that works pretty well here. Okay. So what does he want to talk about? 
Look at verse 1 again. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So as Paul is moving on, he repeats one of the main themes of the letter. The need to continue rejoicing in the Lord. To keep delighting in Jesus. In all that he is to us and in all that he's done for us. No matter what happens with his plans, with his life, with his ministry plans, no matter what happens in Philippi, keep rejoicing in the Lord. Now, why does Paul come back to this right here at the beginning of the third chapter? Because he's already said this sort of thing before, and he's going to say it again, even later. Why does he come back to it? I think it's because of what he's about to say in the next verses. Paul knows that there will be people who come into churches with the message that you do not have all that you need in Jesus. And he knows that they will come in and they will try to offer you something more, something better than what you already have in Jesus. And one of the greatest protections against that is to keep rejoicing in the Lord to keep remembering Jesus and rejoicing in all that he is to you. Now, to see that, I want to to read further in the text that this is actually where he's going. Look at verse 1 again. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, now what's that all about? All this look out. This is obviously a warning in the text. And what's also clear is Paul had already warned his friends about this in times past. He had probably done this when he was with them in person. And now he says to write this stuff to you again is is no trouble for me. This is to safeguard you, to keep you safe from what? From whom? What would be the answer in the text? Paul says he's writing these things to keep them safe from the dogs. Okay, what's that all about? Who are the dogs? Now, a quick word on dogs, especially for my daughter, Nesha. Okay, so my daughter, Nesha, and my son, Elijah. Think of all dogs as cute little puppies. That's what I hear every time we see a dog, regardless of how big or how ugly they are, okay? But, but most dogs in the first century were not cute little puppies, right? For one thing, dogs were rarely pets in the first century. They were typically wild animals, and they were much more like scavengers than anything else. Okay? That's why calling people dogs was often something of a slur against them in the first century. And it's well known that Jews would use that language against Gentiles, which is pretty interesting here. Because here you have Paul, a Jew, writing to his mostly Gentile friends to watch out for the dogs. Now, who exactly is he talking about? He adds, look out for the evildoers. That's helpful, but it's still not very clear. So he adds, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, that is getting closer. Who is Paul talking about? He's talking about 
the same kind of opponents he had been facing throughout his ministry, especially since he started planting Gentile churches. Okay, do you remember, for example, what happened in the Galatian churches? Okay. So maybe you remember, maybe you don't. Okay. On Paul's first missionary journey, he went to the cities of Galatia. Many Gentiles came to Jesus in Galatia. Then Paul leaves because of a bunch of suffering. And what happened right after he left? Some Jewish Christians snuck in behind him and tried to convince these new Gentile Christians that Paul had not told them the whole story. Their faith in Christ was good, of course, but it was not enough for them to be fully accepted into God's family. What they really needed to do to get that status was to be circumcised. That was the path. Needless to say, if you go back and read Galatians, Paul has a few choice words to say about those people in that letter as well. That is very similar to what's happening or what he's talking about in Philippians, with one exception. In Philippi, this is just a warning. When he writes Galatians, the church is actually being led astray. In Philippi, it's not. But he's writing it to protect them because he knows that the very same people will be coming or might be coming. And so he writes this down to keep them safe. Keep rejoicing in Jesus and keep looking out for the dogs, for the evil workers, for those who mutilate the flesh. But when you step back and you think about this, you start to realize just how strong the language is. I mean, for, for Paul, a Jew, to tell Gentiles to beware of the dogs, who in this case are fellow Jews, <laughs> that's pretty strong. And it goes to show just how seriously Paul took it when anyone, even his fellow Jews, tried to turn anybody away from Jesus. Now, let's pay attention to where Paul goes in the text. Look at verse 2. So verse 2 ends with the warning, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now look at what he says in verse 3. To mostly Gentiles. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, that first line, to mostly Gentiles. We are already the true circumcision. What's the point of that? I mean, in the context, so if anyone comes to you telling you you need, in this case, to be circumcised, to be fully accepted into God's family, remember this, we already are the true circumcision. In other words, Christians have already experienced the transformation of the heart, which is what physical circumcision in the Old Testament was always pointing to. See, physical circumcision was a sign of a few different things, but it was a sign pointing to the need for deeper transformation. It was an external sign of the need for an internal transformation, the transformation or circumcision 
of the heart. And the good news for every Christian is that God has already done that operation in your heart. We already are the true circumcision, the people who worship by the Spirit, who glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. And on that last phrase, he talks about those who put no confidence in the flesh. What's he talking about? It's those who refuse to put any confidence in themselves or in their ethnicity or in anything done to their body or in anything that is important in this old age. The people who refuse to put their confidence there but instead put it solely in Jesus, those are the true people of God no matter what background or ethnicity they come from. This this sets the stage for what we're most familiar with in the text. This sets the stage for Paul to talk about his own past, his own accomplishments, and how he thinks about it. So let's look at verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh too. In fact, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh I have more. Okay, so this verse looks back to what Paul just said about the dogs. Right? The dogs are those who put their confidence in the flesh, in their ethnicity, in marks on their bodies. And verse 4 is basically Paul saying, listen, if anyone wants to play that game, I can play it better. If anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I could have more. This, and then this leads to Paul laying out seven things Seven signs of just how awesome he was from a Jewish point of view. In verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Those four things are a sign of his pedigree. They are all, of course, things outside of his control. Like he couldn't have affected any of these things, but they were all true of him. And he put a lot of pride in these things in the past. He was circumcised on the eighth day, just like God commanded. He was of the people of Israel, God's chosen people. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the only two tribes that remained loyal to David. And he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Probably has to do with things like Paul being a pure-blooded Hebrew, not like Samaritans, and that he also knew the Hebrew language. The NLT says, I was a real Hebrew if there ever was one. But that's not all that Paul had. He did not just have the best pedigree. He had an incredible track record behind him. He did not just have the privileges. He had walked the walk better than anybody. And those are the last three descriptions. You look at the end of verse 5. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You see, the first four things were outside of his control. But these three things were in his grasp. And if there was ever a person who went after it, it was Paul. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. Pharisees, again, sometimes, I think, I just mentioned this a couple weeks ago, we, because Jesus was always calling the Pharisees out for their hypocrisy, we can tend to think that nobody liked them in the first century. But the Pharisees were incredibly popular. They were very respected. They, they were the kind of people you wish you could be like. Right? They, they knew the law of Moses, and they loved it, and they observed it meticulously. Paul did that. As to zeal, though, he says, 
I was a persecutor of the church. And I think that's what set Paul apart from even other Pharisees. Lots of Pharisees love the law. But rarely did anyone have the zeal that Paul had to give up the rest of your life to go out and directly pursue and attack anyone that you thought was a threat. Paul had that kind of zeal. He was a persecutor of the church. And he says, as to righteousness that comes from, from the law or under the law, I was blameless. This is not Paul claiming that he was sinless. Because I think this is important for us to remember. The law itself provided sacrifice for sins. But this is Paul saying that with respect to the law, I faithfully observed it meticulously. I was blameless. There was nothing you could point to in my life to hold against me. And when you add up all seven of those things from a Jewish standpoint, Paul could say, if there was ever a single person who could trust in those things, it was me. If anybody wants to play this game, I can play it better. He had a better pedigree and better performance than anyone he knew. And that's what leads to the most important line of the text, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In the past, Paul had seen every one of those seven things as tremendous gain. I mean, if you had a ledger with one column for assets and one column for debts, every one of those seven things was a huge asset. And then Christ appeared and it completely changed the math. And if you want to know the kinds of things that Paul thought about during those three days of darkness in Damascus, this is it. The appearance of Christ called into question everything he had valued, everything that he had done with his life up to that point, everything he had been chasing after. He had both the perfect pedigree, the spotless performance behind him, and now he had to look at it in the light of the man in white, the man who had appeared to him on the Damascus road. And in light of Jesus, what did he see about every one of those assets? He could put them all together, and they were all loss. They added up to one big fat zero. In fact, if you put your trust in any of them, they are loss. Not a single thing he had behind him was an asset. It was all on the debt side of the ledger. And there was only one thing on the asset side. Only Christ. And what Christ required of him was to give everything else up and to trade it in for Christ. And that is exactly what he did. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And to use the language of some of Jesus' own parables, Paul saw Christ as the pearl of great price. He saw Christ as the treasure hidden in a field. Paul Paul came to see Christ as the one and only person who is worth losing everything else for. 
if you could gain him. And my question for each of us this morning is, do you see Christ like that? Each of our life stories is different. But in the end, in one way or another, we're all brought to these kinds of questions. What do we really think of Christ? Who is he? What is he worth to you? What would you be willing to trade for him? What would you not be willing to trade for him? Paul said, I traded everything for him. Christ said, that's the only way to have me. We are called to turn from all we've been chasing after, all we've been trusting in, and to exchange it for the one true treasure, Christ. Even as Christians, we have to keep making the same calculation, the same decision, again and again and again. And for each of us, there are going to be different things that have a hold of our hearts. Some things are easy to give up, and some things have such hold on our hearts. For some, maybe you're here, and God has been pressing on your heart the need, the call of Christ to you to let go of the things that have been keeping you from rising up and following Jesus. Will you do it? What do you see in Christ? I want to speak to you if that's you. Don't let any good thing in your past keep you from Christ. We can all fall prey to thinking, but I did this, I was that. Christ doesn't want it. And he doesn't need it. Trade it in. Take Christ instead. But on the other hand, don't let any bad thing in your past keep you from Christ. We can all fall prey to thinking, but, but I did this. Or I was that. There's nothing Christ can't take care of. There's no sin Christ can't atone for. There's grace in Christ that's greater than all our sin. Along different lines, don't let any privilege that you've had keep you from Christ. We should thank God for the privileges we've had. But don't depend on them. Don't put confidence in your flesh, in anything in you, in anything done to you. Only Christ is worthy of your confidence. But don't let any lack of privilege keep you from Christ either. Don't throw yourself a pity party about what you didn't have while Christ is there inviting you into his banquet hall, while Christ is calling you in, saying, I want you to come in. Don't stay outside sulking while Christ is calling you by name to come. Everything you'll ever need can be yours in Christ, and he wants to give it to you. He offered himself on the cross for us, and he offers himself to us now. He bids us, come. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. But it comes back to the same questions I asked earlier. What do we really think of Christ? Who is he? What is he worth? What is he worth trading for? What would you give up for him? What would you not give up to have him? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take 
this message, which is really Paul's own reflections on his life story, written down for us to challenge us about how we think about Christ and our past, our failures and our performance. Lord, I thank you for this text. I pray that you would use it in our hearts however you need to, however we need. Help us to see all the things of our past in the light of Jesus. And help us to to see you, Lord Jesus, as the one true treasure, the only true asset. And I pray that you'll help those who might be here who have been weighing your claims on them. Help them to follow in the steps of Paul, to count all things as loss, to take you, Lord Jesus. And for my brothers and sisters who've already come to that conclusion, help us to keep making the same calculations. Help us to keep rejoicing in you, Lord Jesus never shifting from the hope and the joy we have in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.